Well, we're back for the second part of the election of 1800, just like we promised. If you haven't listened to the first part, go download that now from iTunes or any other podcast app that you use. If you have, get ready. Part two's coming right up. Before I start talking about Aaron Burr, I'm going to have to crack open my second beer. All right, let's, let's do it. Let's hear what you're drinking. This time I have a Samuel Adams Oktoberfest. Oh, he's all into the Sam Adams tonight. Slow down there, Eddie. Yeah, this is currently available in the public house near you. Oh, yeah. Little pumpkin spice. For a limited time, <laughs> and it is an excellent beer. I drink it whenever it's available, every fall. My first beer was really good too, by the way. Yeah, mine was as well, but it was a cider. What are you What are you drinking, Scott? I, <laughs> I'm drinking from the great state of Memphis, which Tennessee does not claim, by the way. No, that's Arkansas. Tiny bomb. Oh, I like that, Eddie. Just so you know, Scott and I have selected beers based on their names for Adams. So the first one is Tiny Bomb, um, and, <laughs> and the second one is a Scotch ale. Brewed in Colorado, it's brewed in canned at Oscar Blues Brewery. And I'll tell you, he is going to be drunk after this sixteen, this six ounce beer here. Yeah, it's uh, what is it? It's eight percent by volume. Yeah, eight percent by volume. It's called Old Chub, which I think would have been a great nickname. You are going to detect a whiskey taste oh, yeah. in the Old Chub. It's fantastic. Oh yeah, I'm getting a little He's bit of that. Get giggly. I'm getting a little giggly right now, actually. Nice. I love Old Chub. Don't say that ever again, Eddie. <laughs> so transitioning into 1800. Okay, we were talking about Aaron Burr. Here's the huge disaster that happened with Aaron Burr. Like I told you, good pick for a running mate because he can deliver the state of New York and pretty much no other Democratic Republican is going to be able to deliver the state of New York except for Aaron Burr. So even in this in this in this time, we're still looking at the national election really just being a bunch of local elections that you have to piece together to make it. I mean, today you got to win Florida, you got to win Ohio, you got to win, um, you know, you got to win these certain states if you're a Republican, um, you know, to to win the election. If you're a Democrat, you have to win your blue states, and you have to pick up two swing states. In this day and age, in 1800, it, it, the the state you had to win was New York, right? Well. Pennsylvania is going to be a huge state in this election. Not another Democratic-Republican state, right? I mean, Pennsylvania is kind of like New York. It's going to have a lot of Federalists, I would think. The situation in Pennsylvania is just straight-up interesting throughout this entire election because they end up, I believe, with one house that is full of Democratic-Republicans. It's got a Democratic-Republican majority. Ooh. And they have another house that has a Federalist majority. And so those two houses have to work together in order to decide how the state is going to vote. Some of them wanted to actually stop the state from voting, because if you don't get in by the deadline, then your state just doesn't vote. And some people want to do that. They're like, yeah, let's just shut down the whole vote in our state. Enter civil war from stage right. We should do that for California. <laughs> Figure out a way to get their vote in late. There is going to be a, a civil war threatened before this election is over. Ah, so there's some overtones prior to the 18, you know, 60 years in advance 
So from the very beginning, we're talking about civil war here. Well, it's more of a Jeffersonian threat than, you know, anything to do with slavery, like the actual civil war is going to end up being. But yes. So what happens in in Pennsylvania is they end up allowing the lower house, I believe, which is Democratic Republican, to choose eight electors. And the upper house, the Senate, ends up choosing seven of the electors. Well, the eight Democratic-Republican electors all vote for Jefferson and Burr, and the seven Federalists all vote for John Adams and Charles Pinckney. So it's eight to seven, but the split in Pennsylvania is... I mean, that's what Jefferson needed. That's a huge defeat for John Adams and a huge win for Thomas Jefferson. Gotcha. So it would be like Trump splitting New York. Yeah. It's what would have happened, almost what would have happened if they hadn't been able to vote at all because they just canceled each other out, essentially. Yep. North Carolina was split as well, eight to four. So is this an... Is this an upset? I mean, do do we get the feeling that or, – or did folks have the feeling that Adams was just going to walk away with this election again? Or were we shocked by this Jefferson win? There was lots of figuring that went into this. Nobody really knew what the outcome would be um, until electors were chosen, and then the electors would tell the media how they were going to vote. And people could kind of tell how the electors were going to vote based on who chose them. So then people started to put it together and started realizing that Thomas Jefferson was going to win. But Thomas Jefferson did not win. What do you mean by that? Okay. Everybody in the Electoral College gets two votes. But they're not separately for president and vice president. You just get to vote for two people. And so... Some of them will vote for Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. Some of them will vote for John Adams and Charles Pinckney. One person votes for John Adams and John Jay. Somebody has to hold back a vote for the vice presidential candidate. Not one Democratic elector held back a vote for Aaron Burr. Ooh, ooh, I get I get what you're saying. So, So we're all going in as electors and we get together and say, hey— Here's what we want to do. We want Jefferson to win, and we want Burr to be the vice president. We can't vote for both of them the same because that's going to throw into a tie. We need Jefferson to win by at least one vote, but we need Burr to get a lot of votes as well. Exactly. So Scott blew it and didn't hold back his vote for Burr because he was getting some money on the side from Burr somehow. Went ahead and cast his vote. To make sure that there was no clear winner. Well, there was nothing on the side from Burr that I know of. It was a matter of the Democratic-Republican electors being too afraid to hold back a vote. Okay. They didn't want Adams to get more votes than either one of them. Right. That was the fear. Eddie, it's such a crazy way to elect a president. I mean, it, it makes you just think about kind of how lucky we are now to have a ticket where there's no question about what's happening. You really, when you go to the the ballot box and vote, and you think you're voting Jefferson president, and you think you're voting, you know, Burr vice president, you have no idea what you're doing, really. The 12th Amendment is a damn fine amendment. And it lets us know, you know, here's the ticket. I mean, 
It's one vote. It's one ticket. It's McCain Palin. Take it or leave it. Here's the thing that happened that this has never happened before. It will never happen again because of the 12th Amendment. But Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr both got a majority of the votes and they tied. They both got a majority and they tied. Let me ask you this. Do you know, could Burr have done anything once that those results were announced to say, hey, I'm stepping down, I'm, I'm rescinding one vote, or is he pretty much stuck at that point? Oh, no, 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 no. There was plenty he could have done. Okay. All right, so let, now we're getting into the good part. So the election happens. Uh, somebody holds back their vote for Pinckney, so Adams beats Pinckney by one vote. But Jefferson and Burr tie with a majority. And so here's what the Constitution says in the event that two people get a majority and they tie. It says, the person having the greatest number of votes shall be the president, if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed. And if there be more than one who have such majority and have an equal number of votes, then the House of Representatives shall immediately choose by ballot one of them for president. One of who? One of the ones that had the majority? One of the two that had a majority. So the House can only choose between Jefferson and Burr. Wow. Yeah. If nobody had had a majority, they could choose from the top five candidates. Okay, but this is all getting ahead of Hamilton's attempt to get Pinckney over the top. Okay. So right before the election happens, Hamilton contacts a high federalist within the Adams administration, the Secretary of the Treasury, Oliver Walcott. And uh, Walcott writes back to Hamilton, they're coming up with a plan to sink Adams. Walcott says... We know that the present humiliation of the federal party is to be attributed to the violent and inconsistent conduct of the president. We also know that opinions have been frequently expressed by him, not only unjust to individuals, but highly imprudent and dangerous in relation to the public interests. It is, as I conceive, perfectly proper and a duty to make known those defects and errors which disqualify Mr. Adams for the greatest trust with which he is now invested. But the publication of particular incidents and conversations, the knowledge of which has resulted from official relations, will by many good men be considered as improper, blah, blah, blah. The people believe that their president is crazy. This is the honest truth, and what more can be said on the subject? That could have been written today by someone in the Trump administration. I mean, it sounds like there was a group of never Adamses back in the day. Mm. So Walcott leaks information to Hamilton from inside the administration so that Hamilton can write this giant pamphlet about what a total piece of crap John Adams is. <laughs> and and his name is on this pamphlet, or is he like a ghost author? He doesn't care. I don't know. His name is on it. 
Okay, so he just doesn't he, – he is out of Fs at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a totally nutty move. It, it hurt Hamilton more than it hurt John Adams. But he essentially just hands his election to Jefferson, right, or at least to, to Jefferson and Burr. But his, his purpose – I mean, it couldn't have helped. But his purpose was to hand the election to Pinckney. Right, so he wanted so so the goal of this would be all the electors out there that are going to vote for Adams, hold back your vote, vote for Pickney, hope that they swing some Jefferson Burr votes. Essentially, that's what it is. But for some weird reason, at the end of it, Hamilton endorses Adams. I don't I don't know why. Literally, nobody knows why. I mean, Ron Chernow is the smartest historian in the world, and he don't know why. <laughs> Nobody yeah. can figure it out, but it's called Concerning the Public Conduct and Character of John Adams Esquire, President of the United States. And so both of them get less votes than Jefferson and Burr. Mm-hmm. At, at that point, both of them are out completely. There's There's no further consideration – of Pigney or Adams at that point, right? All right. Uh, after that, then the House can only choose Burr or Jefferson. And you said that, but so now what kind of posturing takes place after we know it's one of these two men? Okay. See, you have a Federalist House, and they don't want to pick either of them. Okay. So they they break up state by state. They vote by state, so each state gets one vote. And it's like eight states for Thomas Jefferson, six states for Burr, and two states, they're tied. And so they can't cast a vote one way or the other. And so there's talk that here's what we'll do. We'll have to make a Federalist president for the interim according to the line of succession, until the House can choose. Well, that was just sort of a, a Federalist creation. You know, that that was kind of what they thought that they were going to do. Oh, wow. So who was that? Uh, the line of succession back then would have gone president pro tempore of the Senate until the issue could be decided. But there was no president pro tempore of the Senate. So are you surprised during this time there wasn't more assassination attempts on on leaders so that the succession could be manipulated? The governors of several states, and I mean, we're not just talking about random people. We're talking about the governors of states. They say if you put in a federalist acting president in the interim, we will literally call up our militias. And we will take the government by force. So that's what I was talking about with the Civil War thing. This is when it starts to get real. And so then somebody else points out the text of the Constitution, which says that the House of Representatives shall immediately choose one of them for president. So they can't put the vote off. They've got to vote. Right. So they point to the word immediately and they say, you better hole up, and you better just keep going until you pick somebody. So there was no Mitch McConnell, Merrick Garland moment possibility going on. 
somebody says, hey, you got to do this now. You can't delay this for your political gain. That's right. They don't have uh, – it's not a check where they get to – um, you know, say, yeah, we're not going to do it at all. And that's how we're using this particular power. No, it says you have to do it immediately. Yeah. So what happens behind the scenes when Burr, who's supposed to be the vice president, and he knows that as well. Everybody who nominated him knows he's supposed to be the vice president. Jefferson's the person they want as a Democratic Republican. Suddenly, both of these people are the only people left that are going to be the next president of the United States, and their names are being thrown to the House. And it's not like Burr saying, hey, don't vote for me at that point. Burr has the opportunity. He can immediately end the stalemate by saying, if you make me president, I won't accept it. I'm the vice presidential candidate. But Burr is a bad person. (laughs) Right. We got that. (laughs) Eddie hates Aaron Burr. He and Eric Alexander Hamilton. Yes, and Alexander Hamilton as well. Yep. So Burr, if he loses this, it, it, there's no question at this point that that Burr is not going to be the vice president. He's already essentially the vice president of the country. All he's got to do is say, hey, I'm not going to accept if you like me president. Thomas Jefferson was meant to be the president, and he doesn't do that. Correct. Okay. So what happens? Does Jefferson and Burr get along after that? How does Hamilton feel about all of this, and, and what is Adams doing? Okay, so Hamilton, who hates Jefferson but sees him as the lesser of two evils, <laughs> starts to write letter after letter to the House of Representatives saying, you know, the country's probably over no matter who you pick because they're both such garbage. but Aaron Burr is a super dumpster fire, and Thomas Jefferson is only a regular dumpster fire, so you should pick Thomas Jefferson. Well, it's the election of 2016. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you had to to pick one and say, you know, which one of these is like uh, the election of 1800, 2016's a decent pick. So they're still looking to Hamilton, the House is to give them some direction on who to vote for at that point. Well, I mean, how effective Hamilton's letters were, we do not know. What we do know is that the Federalists, a lot of them want to pick Burr because they believe that if they pick Burr, then Burr will lose all his support from Democratic Republicans for using this nasty strategy against Thomas Jefferson. So he's going to lose Democratic-Republican support. So he'll need everything that he wants to do. He's going to have to go to the Federalists to get it done. Right. And so they want to pick him. In the end, I don't know what backroom deal was made. In the end, they finally choose Thomas Jefferson to be president. And do we know by how many votes or anything like that? It was eight to six to two undecided. And so I would guess that uh, Jefferson got one of those two undecideds, and it went from nine. It went to nine to six to one undecided, and that was a majority. Gotcha. So, Aaron Burr becomes vice president of the United States, and he and Jefferson get along at this point, or what? They get along so well that pretty soon, 
we're not going to talk about this on this episode. We're going to talk about it, I believe, on the next episode. But Aaron Burr will be on trial for treason. And Thomas Jefferson will be going as hard as he can to get Aaron Burr convicted of the treason he's been charged with. That's how well they get along? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, that that's how well they get along. So well that Thomas Jefferson is doing everything he can to make sure that Aaron Burr is convicted of treason. Essentially put to death. Yeah, so it sounds like they didn't get along to start with. It sounds like one of those picks where, hey, this guy can win New York for you. You need to pick this guy. They're not necessarily the same ideologically or even their makeup, their character and their personalities don't necessarily mesh. But then, you know, you have this guy who says, okay, I'm going to be your vice president, suddenly trying to take the presidency away from you, where you've sort of been coronated as the next president. I mean, you were one of the, what, three or four guys that put all this stuff together? One of the three or four guys that's electable in America. Right, and you were just the vice president. Yeah. If anything, you deserve it. Yeah. Um, and suddenly you got a guy kind of stabbing you in the back. It's the first stab in the back moment that we may have you know, in, in the country. And suddenly these two have to go back and work together. It really is that et brute. Brute moment. Yeah, brute exactly. moment, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're going to see a lot of this as we go because, remember, uh, the the actual candidate choosing a running mate is a very modern invention. And explain that a little bit. Beyond the 12th Amendment, there seems to be other things at play with that. In Jefferson's time, like in the election of 1800, the caucus in Congress in the House of Representatives would have chosen the candidates. So Jefferson wouldn't really have anything to do with picking Aaron Burr. And that went on for some time, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then it'll change later with the invention of primaries. But the way the primaries um, originally are going to work is that the convention chooses a vice president. Okay. And usually somebody that the presidential candidate doesn't like at all. So it would have been Bernie Sanders this time around. And and, and Ted Cruz probably. <laughs> yeah, wow. exactly. It's it's very much out of the candidate's hands for a very long time. In fact, uh Eisenhower tried as hard as he could to dump Richard Nixon. Now that would have shook up American history. Boy, how great would that have been for all of us if he could have managed it? But Nixon was Nixon was quite the manipulator. I can't wait till we get to yeah. that one. But I guess we got a minute we do. before we That'll get there. Be a little ways away. A few beers away. Let me see if I talked about everything about the 1800 election. It sure feels like Is it. Is there anything else? <laughs> I told you it's a two-beer election. Oh, it is. I didn't talk about Supreme Court Justice Samuel P. Chase Basically prosecuting and convicting James Callender, who uh, ran the Aurora, and getting him tossed in jail. Was this under the Sedition Act again? Under the Sedition Act. You can't talk smack about John Adams. Wow. Imagine imagine Jim Acosta getting thrown in jail today. <laughs> Personally, I'd like to see it because I think he's a total <laughs> douchebag. <laughs> As far as the supporters of the First Amendment, it's a tragedy. Probably. He's such a douchebag. It's bag. probably worth it. I would. I, I couldn't imagine him doing well in prison, but but maybe I'm wrong. I think he's built for prison. <laughs> I ran a poll on my uh, Twitter account this morning, 
Yeah, I want to hear this. Uh, I almost didn't do it because I, I ran a poll that said if the election of 1796 were held today, who would you vote for, Jefferson or Adams? And everybody picked Adams. He ran away with it. And I thought, well, what's the point of doing it again? Because it'll just be Adams again. But I ran it, and Jefferson won the poll. How did you word it? I need to hear this. Same exact wording. If the election of 1800 were held today, who would you vote for? John Adams or Thomas Jefferson? Why do you think that flipped like that? Okay, well, I'll tell you what I'd like to believe, and then I'll tell you what I believe. Okay, I like both. I like to believe that people said in... 1796, they said to themselves, you know, the country wasn't ready for a Democratic Republican because the federal government was brand new and it needed to be protected by Federalists for another four years. And so I would vote for Adams. And then they said, "Okay, in the election of 1800, now the Alien and Sedition Acts have happened. Now the Federalist Party has grown too strong. Now. I would vote for Democratic Republican. Now is the time. That's what I like to believe. Got it. Okay, what I actually believe happened was that people said that they would vote for the person who won the election. Ooh, I see what you're saying there. Let me ask you a question. Eddie, if you take Jefferson and Adams and you teleport them to 2019 and you have Twitter, you have Facebook, you have televised debates does anything change with the results from these elections knowing what you know about each candidate in history wow well jefferson would be i mean it might kill him to see what it all is today i don't know that jefferson would be proud of this i think jefferson would definitely be a far leftist If he were here today, I think that he would be the Antifa guy in the street screaming, yelling at Trump supporters. I I think that would be Jefferson or he would be the person who likes those people. Yeah. Adams, I think, would probably be a never Trumper if he were here today. I think that he would be a Mitt Romney type character. Yeah, I got you. He was very much the elitist type. I guess I'm a little surprised that you would – because when I think of Adams and the Sedition Act and all the stuff and, like, how thin his ego was, I want to think a little bit Trump with him. Uh, and, oh. Yeah, and maybe you you don't think that because of, I guess, how married he is to order and the rule of law and the Constitution and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm trying to just put words in your mouth, but – the first thought that came to my mind was, well, he's going to say Adams is most like Trump, except for the fact that I know you don't like Adams very much, um, which made me second guess. Yeah. No, no, no. I like them all. I like – I mean I like Adams and I like Jefferson. Okay. You like them both. But, just, yeah. but I don't like them in 2019. I think they suck here. <laughs> <laughs> they they were good for their time. Um, Adams – He is so much like Donald Trump. I mean, you heard the Wolcott letter, which sounds so much like Donald Trump. Yes. But but here's the thing about it is that, uh, number one, if you take two guys with the same fiery temper and the same ego, I don't think they like each other. 
I don't think they look at that other person and recognize, hey, that's like me. You know what I mean? Yeah, do. The other thing is that John Adams, very much an elitist, very much a believer in uh, much swampier things than President Trump would ever believe in. I got you. So, so what does Adams do post-election defeat? Does he kind of ride off into the sunset and accept this defeat, or is he more like Hillary Clinton on the book tour? What what goes on? Well, um, John Adams, probably one of his greatest contributions to America, the first one, probably what he put into the Declaration of Independence. I would say the second one, uh, accepting his defeat and leaving the White House. Yeah which was especially impressive because he had just moved into the White House four months ago. And, I mean, the thought, I if it were me, I would have declared martial law and stayed in the White House just so I didn't have to move again. Yeah, I mean, come on. It's <laughs> a lot of stuff. You just picked out the drapes. But Adams wasn't like me, so he called his friend with a pickup truck and <laughs> told him he needed to move. Moved all this stuff out and accepted his defeat for the good of the republic. And that's the story that's always told about Adams. That's Adams' greatest contribution, certainly to the presidency, is that he set the precedent that when you lose to the other party, even if that party is going to be the end of America for sure, you pack up your stuff and you get out. To me, it was even more, it was even more of an important symbol of America when he left office after being defeated, knowing that he was probably going to be going to abject poverty, given the example what happened to Washington. I mean, to me, it's, you know, it's not like today. There are new, there were no book tours back then. There were no speaking tours. This is something that once you served, um, you know, the career you once had was, was probably ruined by this. I'm glad you brought that up. People talk all the time about the sacrifice of the public servant, and they make a big deal like he has sacrificed. He has given his life to public service. Mm -hmm. You know what? That is a relic. Back then, people really gave up everything to serve. Yeah. And that was true until like, I I guess about the mid 1900s and the now nobody is giving up anything for public service. Like, that's not a thing anymore. It's not a sacrifice. James Comey did not sacrifice anything. Get all that out of my face. It's not a sacrifice anymore. It was back then. These people uh, became penniless. Jefferson yeah. was the – he penned the first uh, draft of the Declaration of Independence – he was president of the United States. He was selling his books by the time he was an old man because he was that broke. And those were what he loved more than anything in the world were those damn books. Yeah. And he's selling them because he's just broke, because he gave his life to public service. little different than today. Yeah. And the same will be true of Madison and Monroe and uh, many, many guys until the end. So when does the allure of this status thing, when does it become something that can be gained for after the president? 
when does that happen? I mean, nowadays, I mean, you can you can live off that dead that kill for years, um, you know, with book tours and whatnot. Just your opinions. Back then, it wasn't. Was it not until really after Eisenhower that people became wealthy after the presidency? Right. You know, there's such a long time when FDR is president. And FDR dies in office, you know, then you have Truman, then you have Eisenhower, and that kind of takes you into the era where there's money to be made afterward. I always think of it the, the atomic age, you know? Things really did change, not just in America, the worldscape, but things changed politically after the bomb, the FDR and then the bomb. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's it's a cause and effect relationship, but it certainly does seem to be after it. So where are we going next, Eddie? 1804? Yeah, give us a preview. Okay, 1804. It's going to be Thomas Jefferson versus, do you know who? We don't. That's why we're asking you. Charles Pinckney. He's back again. Yes, but he is going to lose in a massive landslide. It's going to be a dull election, which, in my opinion, is the best kind of presidential election that you can have. Really, that should be a three-beer election, then. Please, Lord, let it be dull. Well, we're going to talk <laughs> a lot about beer in the next episode, because here's what I'm doing. Okay. I am brewing at home... One of Thomas Jefferson's beer recipes that okay, he left that's behind. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I just got a a pound of flaked maize, or as Jefferson called it, Indian corn, in the mail. Um, I'm, I'm collecting all the ingredients so that I can brew Thomas Jefferson's beer from Thomas Jefferson's recipe and connect with a founding father through his beer recipe. We're going to need some video of that. And are you going to drink it chilled? I am. I am. There's so much of this that's going to hit the cutting floor. <laughs> I'm good, yes. I love but it. Obviously, a lot of it needs to. I yep, think that's the 1800 election. It's a mess. So how do we close this out, Scott? I'm looking to you. You're looking at me. Guys, we want you to look us up. We want you to subscribe. We want you to be a, a listener each and every time here on Every Election Ever and Beer. Tell a friend about us. Find us on Twitter, at Election and Beer. And again, we're going to be doing this every single week for every single election up to the election of 2020. Which is a pretty important election. Uh, listen... This is a make-or-break election for America. It always is. <laughs> this, is an, our, apo this is our apocalyptic moment. Just like the election of 1804 that you'll hear about <laughs> yeah. next time. So come back to the next election, the election of 1804. Scott will be here. Eddie will be here. And I will still be here trying to drink this beer that I opened up called Old Chub. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You don't like the Old Chub? <laughs> Eddie, if you say you like Old Chubb one more time, we're going to have to make this an X-rated episode. <laughs> <laughs> good, good professor, we appreciate the time. We'll see you next week. Yep. Thanks, guys.